Today we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke, looking at the life and teachings of Jesus. And our scripture today comes to us from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him. They went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw that man, he passed by on the other side. So, too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I'll reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had shown mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Now, in the first nine chapters of Luke, there's a great emphasis on the identity and mission of Jesus. And then in the next nine chapters, starting here with this text, there's a great emphasis on what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And this is our first sort of teaching and picture and illustration given by Jesus on what this is going to look like. Now, we're going to use the same categories we did last week to break this text down. I'm going to look at historical significance and day-to-day relevance. If you've been in church for longer than five minutes, you've heard this story. If you're here this morning, many times, in fact, you're like, be a good Samaritan, love your neighbor, let's have lunch. Like what? Like, let's just skip to the end, right? Skip the intro. But if you're here this morning and maybe you're a friend or a family member, you came to celebrate the baptism, you're not a Christian, uh, maybe you're exploring Christian faith, maybe you're not even exploring Christian faith and you're just here today uh, celebrating with your friends, um, you might be thinking, well, I've heard this story because it's just permeated the culture. You know, love your neighbor, the end. Let's get to it. Um, This is actually quite, there's a lot of depth here in the motivator for the Christian life that is just outside of being, uh, you know, people of morality who do good things. Because you certainly don't need to be a Christian to be a person of morality who does good things. And it would be be highly naive to speak that way, like the people who do moral and good, nice, kind things and care for their neighbor are only Christians. This is just not true. So what's Jesus getting at here, and why is this so significant? Let's start with the historical significance. When he's questioned about what he can do to receive eternal life, because that's the context here, Jesus directs our attention to 
first of all, how the love of God and others is actually the fulfillment of God's law. Um, But then as the passage unfolds, we see that the divine standard of what that law looks like, what that love actually looks like, it's impossibly high. So this is more than just, what do I do to get on God's good side and do good things? There's There's some significant things that we need to understand here that actually separates Christian faith from just being a religion of morality. So let's consider it. First of all, he's a law expert. He's not a civic lawyer. He is a religious law expert. And as you may remember, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, Jesus has been doing things on on the Sabbath that the law experts consider to be big no-nos. In fact, from their point of view, he's not keeping the law at all. You're healing on the Sabbath, your, your disciples are eating grain on the Sabbath, you're breaking the Sabbath. From the, from the point of view of the experts of the law, Jesus has no regard for God's law. So the very first verse says, the law expert stands up to test Jesus. And the question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So if we sort of zoom out a little bit, look at what Jesus has been doing, which from their point of view is disregarding the law, it's almost as though the law expert is waiting for Jesus to give a answer that shows he has no regard for the law, a low view of the law, when in fact what Jesus has been doing consistently is, number one, showing them that they're not even close to understanding the heart of the law, and secondly, he's not abolishing the law, he's been fulfilling the law. So this question comes up, he wants to expose Jesus, and uh, so Jesus says to him in verse 26... Well, what's written in the law? And then he says this really excellent question. How do you read it? And how do you interpret it? I mean, isn't that the challenge? Well, there's the law, but then how do I, how do I live this out? What's it going to look like? So when Jesus says, well, how do you read it? What's written in it? There's 613 laws in the Torah. So Jesus is looking for a summary. And when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, he didn't invent that. The scholars, over time, had summarized all of the laws of God. And those 613 sort of civic laws, the proper interpretation of them, if you are reading them correctly and interpreting them correctly, it will look like just a scandalous love of God and a radical love for your neighbor. If you read the laws... All 613, even the ones that make us scratch our heads and say, how could this possibly be wise or good or loving? What Could this possibly lead to human flourishing? In the mind of God, the outworking of those laws is going to look like love. It's the response to the great Shema in the Old Testament. The great Shema of the Jewish people was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And then the response was what this law expert said. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's an archbishop named William Temple who said this. He said that really your religion is what you do with your solitude. It's what you do with your, with your affections and your passions. What, where does your mind and heart and affections go when they're not being intentionally directed somewhere else? That's your true religion. That's what William Temple said. It's a way of saying, you know, do we really find all of, our, all of our delight in our love in God? And the answer for all of us, of course, is no, we don't. Of course we don't. We find it, we locate it all over the place. We're human beings. And, we, and, and because sin is not a commentary on like 
the way that sin intensively shows up and is like really repulsive in somebody's life. Sin is a comprehensive condition that all of humanity is born into, and it's tainted all of us so that we don't want God, we want to be our own gods. So it manifests in a myriad of ways in all of our lives, but certainly we don't love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So Jesus says, how do you read it? How do you interpret it? Now, again, interpretation being massively key, whether we are a community of love and, uh, and care for neighbor or whether we're hateful. What makes communities hateful and bigoted is not having a certain set of values um, that differ from this community's values. The modern-day political conversation around sort of unity or, uh, or inclusiveness is, um, sort of waxes eloquent about accepting everybody, but really what it's become, and I don't mind saying the emperor has no clothes, is what it's become is here is our manifesto for ideology, and if you check all these boxes, you are a loving, caring person. And if you don't check all these boxes, then you're a hateful bigot. Interestingly, 150 years ago, the West thought, hey, let's go around the world because the ways of the West are the ways of the world. And today we would say, no, 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 that's terribly racist and backwards and wrong. And no, we don't believe the ways of the West are the ways of the world. But we've sort of come full circle now because now we have a North American modern Western manifesto of ideology. And if anybody doesn't check those boxes, they're a hateful bigot. But, you know, there's billions of people around the world that don't think about life the way us modern Westerners do. So this is like very, interpretation is a difficult thing. What makes a community hateful is not having a particular set of beliefs and convictions. What makes them hateful and bigoted is how they treat everybody else that doesn't share those. So we can be uh, Christians who love God, love his ways, love his word, desire to walk according to his word, make no apologies for the convictions we have about how we understand his word. But then the way that we relate to all of our friends who are, atheists and agnostics and Muslims and Hindus and you know don't share any of our core beliefs is kindness and dignity and respect because they are image bearers of God even though they don't believe what we believe about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how we ought to live in relation to that so we can be loving and not check any of the same boxes but the weird political manifesto at the moment is no actually you do have to check the same boxes but that is not actually love in diversity it is ideological uniformity. How are we doing? Yeah? Okay. Let's keep... You got, why are you going to go here? Because there's a Samaritan involved in this story. And it's highly politically and racially charged. So we have to consider the implications of what Jesus is actually getting at here. In the uh, time of the Reformation, 1517, you're like, oh man, this is going to be a long sermon. Don't worry, I'm going to summarize it. 1517, the way they talked about interpretation was using two terms magisterial use of reason or ministerial use of reason. A ministerial use of reason was, how do I use language and history and context and all of these things to humbly sit under God's word in an effort to understand it? Ministerial use of reason. Uh, of reason. That's how we do what's called exegesis. What's the original language? What's the context? What was going on? How's Jesus deep diving into Levitical law here? What are the implications? I'm going to try and do my best to use a ministerial use of reason to exegete the text. Magisterial use of reason is I stand over the text and I use my modern language and my modern historical context and my geopolitical situation and that becomes the lens for what I'm looking at and then instead of exegeting meaning out of the text, I eisegete and I you know, jam my thoughts and ideas into the text. Jesus says to the law expert, how do you 
read it. How do you interpret it? And then he gives the right answer, of course, and Jesus says in verse 28, do this and live. That little phrase is a deep cut. The law expert would have recognized it because he's an expert. That's from Leviticus 18. Keep the law, do this and live. Well, of course, nobody's keeping the law. The purpose of the law is pointing us to the fact that we need redemption and grace and forgiveness and a Savior, a Messiah, who can keep the law for us. We can't keep it. It's not like, who are you on your best day? You kept the law. It's perfect, perpetual, and personal. It's 24-7. And none of us are doing that. The law expert wasn't doing that. Jesus says, oh, you answered correctly. Do this and live. Deep cut from Leviticus 18. So that's why in the very next verse, it says the law expert sought to justify himself. Jesus goes, you've answered correctly. Do this and live. And he's like, oof, I'm feeling the gravity of what that actually means. And seeking to justify himself, the law expert does what all law experts do right out of those lawyers. Right, Peter? Those law experts. Define neighbor, define the good, define, 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 define all of it, right? Define it. Seeking to justify himself, he wants to look for a loophole. I mean, is there a way that I can be seen as being justified here? Have you ever justified yourself? Feels amazing, doesn't it? It feels so good. Particularly where per, per, the best kind of justification that feels so good, it's terrible and sinful, but this is what feels so good, is when you simultaneously justify yourself and make the other person the problem. I mean, it's a two for one. Because you're justified and they're actually the problem. Right? And... So this guy is searching for a way to justify. His first mistake was assuming that he had fulfilled the first commandment. And then his second mistake is now he wants Jesus to narrowly define neighbor. And then the the story unfolds. So Jesus is like, oh, that's what's happening here? This guy feels a little bit of, he's lost theological traction. We're in a bit of an exegetical drift. And Jesus is like, why don't we just keep our foot to the floor on this? Let's not let off the gas. So he gives the story of the Good Samaritan, which is an illustration from the law in Leviticus 19. Again, deep cuts. These are deep cuts. Leviticus 19, 33 to 34. I'm going to read it. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. That's the law. So Jesus takes this law from Leviticus 19 about treat, treat the foreigners like they're your own. That's Leviticus. You know, if you fast forward 500 years to Amos, you know, if you just zoom out and look at scripture by the time Babylon comes in and flattens everything, it's because the people of God were doing the opposite of that. Right? So Jesus takes Leviticus 19 and he turns it into a, this, this parable is actually a wonderful illustration of that law. Who's my neighbor? If I can lower the standards, I'll feel amazing. It's like when I was a teenager, I was constantly trying to dunk a basketball. I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm standing on a platform right now. 
You know what I mean? Piccolo Italiani. I mean, uh, five foot, nine and a half. And I'm lying about the half. <laughs> like, I was always trying to dunk. Okay, well, I can't dunk a basketball. I can dunk a volleyball. Okay, can't maybe a tennis ball. Can I dunk a golf ball? And now, here I am, uh, you know, uh, going to the 223 with my boy, and it's looking at my son, Nigel. It's like looking in a mirror. He's constantly trying to do the exact same stuff I was trying to do. Dunk the basketball, can't dunk the basketball. Try to dunk the volleyball, can't dunk. Then you, then you find those, like one of the greatest creations of all time, the basketball nets, which rims can be lowered, and you lower it down to nine feet, and you're LeBron. See, that's what the Pharisees were always doing. Dunking on a nine-foot net, telling themselves that they kept the law. That's what's going on here. So Jesus is like, no, actually, let's crank it back up to ten where you're loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength. And then that manifests like loving your neighbor with all of the force and energy and speed that you take care of your own needs. How fast do you take care of your own needs? I'm just going to go ahead and say it because I feel like you're uncomfortable. Pretty dang quick. I mean, how long do you sit in your own suffering and discomfort before you're like, we got to do something about this. It's almost immediate. And so the law is 10-foot rim. Some of you are like, actually, I can do it. Quiet. You're ruining my sermon illustration. It's a 10-foot rim. Loving our neighbors with that kind of energy. So that's what Jesus shares the story that he does. And he begins the story by saying, this guy goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he falls among thieves. And this, this is lost on you and I, the historical significance of this, because we're just like, mm-hmm, interesting. But the original audience would have been like, oh, snap. That dude was on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves? We call that Tuesday. That stretch of road, Josephus, the historian, said, uh, quote, it was famous for lurking danger. Some called it the pass of blood. High cliffs on either side. A million places to hide. It was the, it's ancient crime alley. There's broken pearls over in this ditch. There's bloody opera tickets in that ditch. It's just crime alley. You're expecting it. And what this does is it presents two possibilities. The first possibility is you've got people with great needs as a result of having calamity come on their life they didn't ask for. But the other possibility is they did it to themselves. What are you doing? Walking down the street when you know these kinds of things are going to happen. So it presents the possibility of encountering people in our life with tremendous need. And we're like, they deserve it. They did it to themselves. Right? We drive by the tent city and maybe you look over and you're like, huh, maybe if it had worked a little harder in life. You did it to yourself. What Jesus presents here is not only a scenario where... You've got two different possibilities of how this calamity could come on a person. Not only that, but really provokes us to consider, like, what are our reactions to this? So, of course, he puts the priest and the Levite in there, and those things are obvious, because according to their office, they're obligated to get involved. The law commands them to get involved. So what they do is they pass over on the other side of the street so that they can say, I kept the law, he was not in my path. Right? Care for all those in your path. Oh, what do I do about that? Oh, they're, they're not in my path anymore. It's so easy. Have you ever justified not loving and caring for people sitting in the chairs next to you? It's so easy. To borrow from Charles Spurgeon, I never knew a person who failed to help the needy who also failed to give at least one admirable excuse why. 
And so Jesus obviously puts the, the Samaritan here because the Jews and the Samaritans despised each other. Racially, they despised each other. Religiously, they despised each other. They were two groups at constant odds and fighting. So, the, so Jesus presents an opportunity where you could look at the person and say, You're, you are the culture, you are the culprit of creating hurt and pain and oppression in my life. And justice was served because you're in the ditch. You've been wreaking havoc and causing pain. And now it's happened to you. And thank God it happened to you. You deserve it. This is the scenario that Jesus presents. Verse 33, it says he had co- that the Samaritan had compassion. That adjective, I'll talk about it just quickly in a few more minutes. But that's the number one word in the New Testament describing the, the Jesus' reaction to people. This compassion. And so he pours the oil to soothe the wounds. It's thoughtful. And the wine, the alcohol content, the antiseptic effect. It puts him on his own animal. So the Samaritan is walking. And so he's, you know, got the self-emptying love. And he gives the money to the innkeeper in the parable in the story. And so there's this huge cost. It's this big picture of this agape love, this undeserved love. But then at the end, Jesus flips it. Because remember what the original question was. Who's my neighbor? What's the question Jesus asks in verse 36 at the end, he doesn't say, he doesn't say who the neighbor is. He says, who is, Jesus says, who is being a neighbor? That's what Jesus was interested in. And this is so profound that this law expert can't bring himself to say Samaritan. He's just choking on it. He's choking and he goes... The one who showed mercy. He can't even say Samaritan. He can't even let the word leave his lips. We're not talking low-key racism. We're talking like full-blown racism. Can't even say it. The one who showed mercy. He was being a neighbor. So Jesus answers and he says what, of course, those of us who have been in church for any length of time know. He's saying our neighbor is the one that's in need that's actually right in front of us. right? But he's more interested in us being the neighbors. Let's move on to the day-to-day relevance. He closes this whole parable by saying, go and do likewise. So in the closing few minutes here, I just want to expound on this. Go and do likewise. I mean, the motivating force for a life of love and generosity and sacrifice, it has to flow from seeing where Jesus is putting you and I in the parable. Where are we in this story? At the beginning of the sermon, many of us who've been in church were like, Good Samaritan, be a good Samaritan, go and do likewise, got it. We're supposed to be the good Samaritans. That's not where Jesus puts the law expert in the story. That's not where, remember, the law expert says he stood up and he asked Jesus, It's probably happening in the synagogue, there's other people there. Who are all of the listeners? Who are they all in the story? Right? They're not priests, they're not Levites, and they're, they're all thanking God that they're not Samaritans. They are the travelers who've been knocked down, beat up, left for dead. They're the ones in need of rescue. That's who the law expert is. That's who that original audience was. That's who we are. That's who we need to see ourselves as in the story. We're laying in the street. Now we need rescue. And then a rescuer shows up to save us. And he's not the rescuer we want. Jesus shows up as the deliverer and the Messiah... But he's not the deliverer that we want. He's not the one we expect. He's the hero that Golgotha needs but doesn't deserve. This is what's going on here. Jesus 
just puts us in that place so that we choke just like the law expert choked. Say, wow, the power to live this life of love and generosity and undeserved sacrifice, it can't flow from guilt. It's got to flow from gratitude. It's got to flow from being recipients. Recipients of love and of generosity and seeing it, seeing the grace, seeing the love. Because there's a lot of ways to conclude this sermon, right? With religious guilt. Think of what God did for you. Come on, get out there and be a better good Samaritan. You don't even need to be a priest to do that. You can just be a modern political voice. Hey, there's a lot of people in the street, guys. What are you doing with your power and your privilege? What are you doing with that privilege? Say it really, just guilt. You have so much and they have so little. Guilt. Guilt is a lousy motivator. It's so short-lived. For those of you parents here have, have young children, you can't motivate them to love Jesus and love his ways by guilt. It's got to be gratitude. It's got to be that eye-opening, gospel-driven gratitude. So that everything that we're doing is just fueled by pleasure and not payment. Right? Enjoyment. Not some sort of sense of religious earning. It just got to flow from just the disbelief that we were the recipients of Jesus Christ, the great Samaritan, who would motivate us to want to be good Samaritans. It's got to flow from that kind of marveling. Christian maturity flows from marveling. No marveling, no maturity. We can do all the right stuff on the outside, but if we're just driven by guilt... Ah, I ought to be a good person. Ah, the preacher preached on the Good Samaritan. I ought to... It's got to be just this... The only way to reanimate the heart, this desire, is to be captivated by the great Samaritan who is moved with compassion. The word compassion, it comes from a Greek word where the root, the root word means your guts. It means your... It means your Your inner entrails, heart, liver, lungs, and kidneys. That's the Greek word. That's the root word for compassion. It's a way of saying like Jesus was moved in his guts. He just, he looked on humanity and something inside him just turned and he felt it. And he's like, I have. So you see, if we look on those in need, like whether or not they're deserving, then we ought to be thankful that Jesus didn't look on us and be like, should I? (laughs) Give my life for the deserving poor because he could have saved himself a trip from glory to humanity. But it means this, the seat of affections. In verse 31, 32, and 33, Jesus intentionally says that uh, the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan saw. The priest saw him. The Levite saw him. The Samaritan saw him. They all saw, but only one was moved. So how are you and I to be moved? Well, it's counterintuitive because it flows from meditation and worship. It flows from putting the the rhythms of worship in your life, in your family, whether it's around your dinner table or at night. You've just got rhythms of reflection and stopping and just thanking God that this life is not all that there is. Thanking God that when you look at your newsfeed, that's not our political heaven. Like that's not, well, it actually is our political heaven. That's not 
ultimately the end. That's not heaven. This is our best efforts at utopia. But we can look at that and say, thank God this life is not all that there is. Because otherwise, globally speaking, it's really short and really hard. And not let that hardness and then not be motivated by guilt. Oh, here we are in southern Ontario. Life is easy and good. We have power and privilege. I guess we ought to not, you know, feel guilty and use it. No. It's deeper. It's more profound. We don't want to be like the priests and the Levites that look on the needs of those in the seats around us or in our families and be like, peace be with you. Bye. But to be moved. Again, to borrow from Spurgeon, let it never be forgotten that what the law demands of us, the gospel produces in us. May we revel in all of this. May we be, be ministers of love. May we be propelled by gratitude in our homes, with the people sitting in these chairs around us in this church community. May this be a motivator for how we love and care for people and relate to them in our workplaces, on campus. May we be motivated by this gratitude. May we be motivated as we marvel at Jesus Christ, the great Samaritan. Let's pray.